Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey folks, just a warning up front, this episode contains some really, really graphic and triggering stuff about suicide, so I just wanted to give you a heads up going in. When I was a kid, my dad was a cop. You see, my dad was a cop in the 1980s in Sydney, which has been widely regarded as one of the most dangerous times to be a police officer in Australia. It was basically the Wild West. So I wrote a book about it. It was called Loose Units. And then we did a podcast about it. Loose Units Season 1 was an incredible experience, and we loved every minute of it. But it turns out that Dad did more than just patrol the streets. He plunged headfirst into the terrifying world of forensics. So on this season of Loose Units, that's what we're doing. We're going deep into the world of forensics and fingerprints and all of that good stuff. Well, I say good stuff. Actually, things got worse than ever. So strap in for Loose Units Season 2, Electric Blue. Hello and welcome to Episode 2 of Season 2 of Loose Units 2, Electric Blue. God, there's a lot of... A lot of words there. That's very confusing. Uh, with me, as always, is the hero of the piece, uh, my dad, John Verhoeven. Say hi, Dad. Hi, Dad. Very good stuff. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much for listening last week, uh, and thank you so much for all the feedback on our return to Loose Units. We've had an absolute blast doing it, but one of the things we didn't do last week was talk about what it was actually like to start in forensics. So we told some pretty disturbing stories, but what I wanted to ask you, Dad, was do you remember what the first case you actually handled uh, as somebody working in forensics was? I do. Okay. Um, so, as I said, it was on the job training. Yeah. And you just basically went out with a with a senior guy. These are these are eminently qualified and experienced guys. There were three of them. Yeah. And Wait, three in the whole department or? Three in that particular, in the Chatswood Scientific, which basically did everything to do with forensics from the Sydney Harbour Bridge and north. Really? That's it. And then you had the big scientific section in the city, yeah, uh, which covered the south city, and that also had the ballistic section, mm. which is a whole other world. Can I ask a question about the overall temperament? Because obviously we've talked about dispatch, and you've done some. We did a great kidnapping story last season in the dispatch yep. department, yep. where you said it was just regular cops, but sort of doing shifts in mm. dispatch. Yeah, right? yeah. What 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 kind of people gravitate towards the sciences in the police, or did back when you were well, Jen. Generally speaking, people that um, just had just had a desire to know what went on behind the scenes in terms of okay, you go to all these amazing crimes, but mm. being in general duties, you 
you weren't allowed to go. I mean, you discover a scene and then you were told to piss off and then not even the detectives were allowed in. It was just, it was sort of all taped off and the only people that could enter that inner sanctum and actually get right into the into the whole gravitas of the, of the scene yeah. were those involved in, in the scientific investigation section. So, in a nutshell, Paul, you would go to a, a horrendous crime where there were bodies everywhere and you would be the only police allowed inside because you, you can't afford to have the crime scene damaged in any way. Of course. And then you, you might pull up a chair if it's if it's appropriate and you just sit there with your partner yeah. and with the bodies lying ar- around you at your feet and you just sit there and you and you observe and you you might you may take notes and you get a sense of what has actually happened because first impressions can be wrong you know for example is it a murder is it a murder suicide is it a double suicide there are all these different combinations and you know is is look there there's so much to Absorb, and a lot of it's just really, really nutting out and thinking, thinking smartly. But also, you kind of do tend to get into the mind of the crim, yeah. Which, which I think, and that that's why having that police background, in my opinion, even though as I said in the last episode, it, it's changed yeah. now. Um, but yeah, look, it was all a matter of just kind of on the job training. But one of the great things about the job was learning. About photography. Now, there was a story last season where you talked about the air wing and where they let you basically dangle out of a plane and take photos mm. of a lake. Yep. So, you were obviously fairly um, into photography at that point. Mm. But when you actually look at a career option, it can't just be the one thing that draws you there. Um, but how big a draw was being able to actually do things like take photographs? Look fascinating. Right. So, you- it's very important uh, in the world of crime and particularly forensics to have continuity. You hear about it, for example, in the O.J. Simpson case. You yes. may recall that one of the police, one of the forensic guys, he took some evidence home with him that night. Yeah. He left it in his car. Now, once that was established that it had been left unattended, the defence team, mm. O.J. Simpson's defence, can then say- It was, could have been tampered with. Could have been tampered with. Replaced or- And this, this poor, I felt sorry for that particular policeman because he honestly thought he was doing the right thing. Yeah. So, what happens is you go to- Once I learnt the, 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 the sort of the mechanics of taking photographs, and by the way, back then in the 1980s, we were only allowed to photograph in black and white. Right. Why is that? The reason, I'm glad you asked, was that- we used to get involved in quite a few. Uh, uh, we used to photograph um, mainly women that had been beaten up in domestics, right. and that was fairly traumatic, as you can imagine, because you know they're alive and their their faces have been bashed by assholes. Yeah. And um, we weren't allowed to use color photography because the get ready for this the the defence council yeah. back in the eighties. That's the people representing. The basher. Oh, yes. Okay. Yeah. Argued that we could use different coloured filters to make the injuries look worse. How's that? So, bruising that perhaps might not have been quite as bad, even though the fact is he's laid a fist generally on on a person of the opposite sex. Yeah. But the defence was saying, well, you know, maybe it wasn't as bad and if we used colour and they could put a red lens and a blue lens filters, I should say, we can make things look far, far worse. And my poor client here will 
go away for five years instead of two years. You with me? Yeah. Of course, that's all changed. We weren't allowed to use video evidence, although I've got some great stories about some things I went to later where we started to use uh, experimental video evidence in some horrendous cases, which we'll get to. Experimental video, do you mean like a like, early David Lynch or do you mean like no, techniques? Well, you know, using actually learning how to use movie cameras at murder scenes. Oh, wow. So it was pretty fascinating. Okay. Um, and it was a very, very big thing to get this evidence submitted into court. Mm. So imagine we were using what was called medium format, big, big cameras like Rolleiflex, Mamiya, Hasselblad, super, super expensive cameras. And we had these amazing batteries that were called wet cell batteries. They're like a car battery on a strap on your shoulder that weighed kilos. I mean, it was like, it was fairly archaic. Sure. And you'd go along to these, uh, to these particular crimes and you would take photographs. You would then go back to our black and white processing laboratory which was in that little house the back of chatswood police station yeah you'd go into the dark room you would then under under a black light well in 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 pure darkness you would then take the unexposed film out of the camera you would then put it into um a special container you would then go through the process of developing the film and how does okay so some of our younger listeners will think this sounds like we are describing like jurassic era technology mm, but mm. developing film it's incredible it's it's it, mind-blowing it's, it's like, seeing yes yeah. it's, it's seeing the image appear before you can you imagine going to the scene of a murder mm. now that scene is being preserved for forensics to gather evidence can you imagine you go there you take your photos mm. and something goes wrong but back in the day, we're not talking digital where you take a photograph with your mobile and you look at it and go, yeah, that's cool. I'll keep that. I'll delete it, whatever. No, 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 no. You don't know what you've got on film until you've left the scene, which is then cleaned up, body's taken away. The window closes, basically. It's gone forever. And then you go back to the- Can you imagine going back to the, the lab and, and developing you- and developing and all of a sudden- Or someone walks in. They actually open the door and everything's exposed and you've lost all that incredible evidence. Can you explain, because uh, I know we had a dark room at high school, which I never really got into, which I, I'm annoyed about still to this day. But just from a layman's perspective, how does developing a photograph, especially something with that kind of high stakes, how does that work? Like the actual process. I know there's a bunch of chemicals and there's trays and you got to hang it up with a peg. No, but the, 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 well, one of the most difficult things that's going to be really, really like, I'm, I think I'm fairly good at explaining things, but if I try to explain how you actually get the film out of a camera, right. you get it out of the roll, you then feed it into this weird thing and it has to sort of spiral. But it's all in it, – There, it is – There's there are no safe lights. It's not at that stage. You cannot allow one micron of light to enter and expose because it'll, it'll, it'll expose – overexpose the film. Right. So, it's in pure darkness and you're learning how to do this. And you can't make mistakes. But eventually when you get into this special canister, then you seal it up so it's dark inside. Then you pour these different agents, chemical, that some of them are like are very, very toxic mm. and probably would, well, toxic being the word, probably kill you. And you go through all these different processes, but you then use fixing agents that then kind of take away the outer layer. It's, 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 it's a fascinating art. And then once it's all done, you then, you then hang the film and then once it's dry, you come back in. But the thing is, you the, the key word to all this is continuity because you cannot allow the defense in court to say, were you at any time, or, or did, were you not with that film? Yeah. 
facts to prove that it hasn't been tampered with. Anyway, then once it's it's dry, you then put it in front of a uh, onto sort of a, a printing thing, and you get your photographic paper. Mm-hmm. Now, then you can work in what's called a red light or a safe light, and then you expose the image. And it's it, it, it was fascinating, the whole process, where you could use like a, a light would come down the image onto photographic paper. But if there was a section of the film that had been a little bit too dark, you might want to – you kind of blank with your hand. You create a shadow with your hand yeah. and you put a bit of a shadow on the lighter areas and you allow more light to come down on the darker areas and that then brings the darker areas up. And then once it seems to be just right, you then put it into another solution and you kind of it's it's frozen and fixed in time, and then it dries, and there is your black and white photo. And, okay. and then they, they, these photos were six by eight inches, yep. and they were good for court. So if you're in a jury watching, um, you know, a trial unfold, and and they because the jury get to see all the photographs, and these are the photographs that I'd taken or whoever had taken them of the scene would then be passed around to the jury. Right. Okay. So that's in a nutshell. And the defence is, you know, obviously trying to. Discredit. Discredit the photos. Yeah, yeah. So, you are right. That is a very valid point. That like It's like they'd be fairly precious in terms of like, did you ever get to the point where you felt uh, maybe you'd muffed it with the developing of a photograph or did you hit the ground running with these things? No, they were always, I was, I was, look, it was, it suited my nature. I was very particular. Um, I actually um, had an incredible have I, ever, have I ever discussed the amazing collection? You know that you know those photos that you saw yes. when you were a little kid. You yes. know I had I had an incredible collection, and it was it was some bad shit, all the, all the bad stuff. I'd, and I kept for my own well for my own record. Yeah, and they were, and they were in a box. And then years and years and years later, when I joined the uh, the fire brigade, mm. um, yeah, someone uh, someone broke into my locker at the fire station and uh, stole. My entire collection of forensic photos. I guess my problem with that story, not the problem with the story, but the problem with the thing that happened was that, um, as you've mentioned, quite a few ex-cops end up as fireys, mm. right? Yep. So, do you have any suspects? Yeah, but I, look, you know, you can never prove these things. But it was just, I was really, 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 really upset right. that I had lost that that part of my life because there were some really amazing colour photographs of me standing at incredible um, you know, post-mortems, for example. Uh, so the whole collection, it, it, it vanished. Obviously, someone I'd shown them to someone and they'd been sort of, well, I don't know what they, they must have been not excited, but they thought, wow, this is some serious shit. And then, unfortunately, they- uh, Stole them. Yeah, they stole them, which is a bummer. Yeah, that was a real bummer for us because obviously when Penguin said yes to Lucina's the book, one of the things they wanted were, you know, some really juicy photos, not of crime scenes, but, you know, specifically the book opens with me describing a photo mm. and I can't then show that photo. No, no. I would argue not showing that photo was a sign of respect to the mm. victim. True, true, um, true. So, okay. Do you remember, just to wind it back- Sorry, sorry. No, yeah. no, 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 no. Much like a film, we are winding yeah, yeah, it back. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, what, what was your first- Memory of your first case in Okay, well, this is fairly um, fairly basic, really. It was an arson. Uh, it was a house. Um, uh, you know, a couple of people passed away in the fire, which is um, n- knowing what I now know about fires. It's a shitty way to go. Yeah. We went to this particular- uh, This was sort of a, a bit of a baptism by, excuse the pun, fire. Sure. And this is so basic, what I'm about to say, but makes such incredible sense. The lovely, lovely senior- scientific guy that I was working with, he said to me, now, John, I want you to, uh, he, he gave me this brand new paint tin 
but it with no labels on it, so it was silver and it was sparkling. You know, like a, a four-gallon yeah. or four-litre paint tin yeah. with, a, with a, a lid you press down. And he said, I want you to go outside and I want you to fill this up with water. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. So I walk out of the fire. The fire's obviously long gone, but but there's soot and and it was filthy and you could still smell uh, like a burnt pig smell because humans, when they burn, they smell like uh, pork. Why is that? Because we're probably fairly similar in makeup to uh, to pigs okay. in terms of the skin burning, sure. Which is which is not an uncommon thing. You will hear police and firemen talk about. They thought they could smell uh, pork, right? Which is actually, in essence, humans. Yeah. And so I go outside, and I remember that all the water had been turned off to this house to prevent the fire is being electrocuted inside. So I had to go and use a neighbor's tap, and I fill this four liter tin with water. Now, get ready for this. And this is going to sound wacky. But what one of the things we had to do, because we realized when you go into a fire after a fire, one of the things you look for is the smell of any accelerant. 
What's oh, an accelerant? Like petrol or something, which indicates that it's arson. So someone had actually come in and poured petrol to help the fire get going. Okay. So we could smell the petrol, but how how would you get a sample of that smell? Uh... That had to be later on forensically. <laughs> Isn't that incredible? You can't capture a smell. No, you? but guess what? I come back into the house or what's left of the house yeah. and my colleague, I, I hand this this tin full of water. Get ready for this. Yeah. He then pours the water out on the floor and then puts the lid on. So when you think about it, as the water left the tin, the air in that room went into the tin and he just put the tin lid on and there he has a sample of the air. And then that tin, yeah. we, we seal it up. I then had to take that to the Division of Analytical Laboratories in Lidcombe. And hang I, on. No, no, just quickly. No. Smells it, sounds... That sounds... No, but isn't such, that incredible? Yeah, it's insane. So then I deliver the tin yeah. and they stick a syringe in the lid and they suck the air sample that yeah. we had taken from inside the room and because we could smell an accelerant, that accelerant was now in the tin, which yeah. they could then suck the air out of the tin, yeah. and they've got a sample. Now, tell me that's not incredible it's and am- basic. It's amazing. But, I mean, what do they do? That's some MacGyver But can shit. you imagine the first time I saw a guy in a, at a crime scene pour out four litres of water onto the floor yeah. and then put a lid on it? That's bizarre that's but, old but logical school. old school i'm old sure school. that i don't know whether that still happens but wow i mean how that was that was i just i was in awe and i thought wow if this is what forensics is about i mean next time i uh, am engaged in a dutch oven i'm gonna bring a paint tin full of water pour it out trap that love it monetize it brilliant i have a question though once they've syringed out the uh, the air with the smell of accelerant in it uh, how is that used as evidence? Surely you only get a, you know, one sniff of the cork. No, no, they would use a gas spectrometer uh-huh. to analyse the sample and they can tell if there is the presence of an accelerant, okay. which then goes to show and help. Oh, well, uh, so they say, oh, okay, what did you observe? What, what Could you smell anything when you went in? They're talking to the police and you yep. go, yeah, I could, there was a strong smell of petrol. Okay, prove it. Oh, okay, well, here is here is the lab result telling us parts per thousand um, in terms of, you know, the, the petrol vapour. I can't – it never occurred to me in a million years that you could, like, trap a smell, analyse it. Isn't that amazing? But, but it's logical. Yeah, I guess it is. But, like, a smell isn't just – a smell logically has to contain particles of the thing. You're actually inhaling the thing. Correct. Right? Yep. So if someone's farted, you're breathing in shit, Chris. Well, I guess if you farted into a jar, <laughs> seriously, and then sealed it properly – Perhaps, who knows, maybe months later, if you uh, were the unfortunate person to, you know, yeah. open it and then put your nose in and yeah. t- take a big deep breath, you might still, there could be remnants of that. Be a great prank to pull for forensics, wouldn't it? Yep. Get some old boffin to kind of crack up in a jar. Oh. Actually, Ooh. speaking of, of foul odours, yeah. um, we used to get involved in lots of um, identification of, of unidentifiable. Yeah. Y- you know, when you listen to the news and they say, Police are trying to or are endeavouring to identify that particular person. Yeah. Well, the backstory to that identification is quite frankly pretty horrific. But just on the odour thing, yeah. Quite often, bodies that have been out in the water and they sink. Yeah. Then the gas is built up inside them and then they float. That's what takes them back to the surface. Now, when they go to the morgue and they cut the body, there's an incredible build up of gas, and that that's that's pretty whiffy. I just thought I'd share that with you. But, I mean, let's say you were a bad guy 
or a really complicated good guy and you needed to dispose of a body mm. and you needed it to sink, how would you do that? All right. Look, I've actually got a great story for you. Yeah, great. Which is kind of, again, slightly depressing. I mean, it's a good thing we have a podcast on which to put that great story. No, but story. This, this story, you have not heard this story either. And well, Okay, so when, when did this happen to you? Okay, this story actually happened, uh, let me think about this. I'd have to say probably around about 19... No, no. When when were the Olympics? The nineteen ninety two Olympics in Sydney. Uh, no, the Sydney Olympics were two thousand. Seriously? Yeah. Well, that that's scary because this particular story pertains to the Sydney Olympics. Is it uh, going to fit well in a, a podcast about forensics? Yes, because you said something about if I wanted to get rid of a body, how would I make it sink? Yeah, go and for stay, it. Stay, stay. So this this is a story about a uh, an ex New South Wales police officer who was a friend of mine. And he left the police force and he and a, and, a, and a business partner got the cleaning contract or one of the venues for the Sydney Olympics. One of the venues. Do you remember which one? Mm, out at um, what's, what's the Sydney Olympic Park. Homebush. Homebush. Homebush, yeah. Yeah, but when you say one of the venues, uh, venues for what? Do you oh, look, it could have been. Like I'm not quite. It could have been gymnastics or one of the big venues, one of the stadiums. Oh, they, okay. they got the cleaning contract. Yeah. And he'd, he was a friend of the uh, the mine, and we'd actually been away with him to the vineyards up in um, the Hunter Valley. Sure. So he was a really, really nice guy. He was, he was, uh, he was a really sweet guy. And um, but we sort of lost touch. But he got into uh, business, uh, and they they did very well with the the contracts. But his business partner became a little bit greedy. And um, one night, ironically, uh, in hindsight, in the suburb of Chatswood, which is where I used to be in forensics, yeah. he organised to meet his his business colleague that so that's my friend uh, met up with his business colleague one night and my and my friend um they were discussing something or other and his business partner decided that night to murder him so execution style he got my friend ex-policeman to kneel and he shot him in the back of the head true story and you mentioned about the, the sinking body yeah what this particular scumbag did so he's murdered an ex-copper and a friend of mine. Yeah. Uh, he then bound the body with chains. Now, this guy was not that smart. What he did was he went to a local hardware store in Brookvale. Yeah. And he bought a whole lot of chain. But he got a receipt for the chain. Oh, yeah. So he gets a receipt for chain that he's about to wrap around yeah. a person he's just murdered yeah. who happens to be an ex-copper. Yeah. And he wrapped him up in plastic, so he's chained and put put the guy, wrapped him up in plastic, and then he took him up to somewhere on the central coast and he threw him off the end of a wharf where the body sank. But he hadn't done a great job and invariably the body uh, came to the surface. With the chains or without? Mm, he just, you know, sloppily tied. Sure. Uh, anyway, he went to jail. But that's just a bit of a, a weird aside. Uh, was this friend of yours... Was he featured in any of the previous stories? We've no, done? never. Never? No. Okay. I sometimes forget how many people you must have worked with. Yeah. Because um, <clears throat> I heard someone on a TV show saying that you could stab someone and deflate their lungs so the lungs wouldn't wouldn't act as kind of buoyant devices. Is that bullshit? I've never really heard that before. It sounds fascinating. Yeah. I'm watching Fargo at the moment and yeah. I've just watched the one where the guy- I haven't uh, seen it. Oh. Okay, well, I won't tell you. <laughs> but it's to do with it's getting rid of a body using a meat grinder. I think because what you told me uh, for the book, uh, I'm sorry I keep referring to the book listeners, but uh, you should probably read or listen to the book. One of the things that you described in the book is the fact that the body sinks underwater and then decays 
and the decay uh, starts the process of uh, actually generating gas, Correct. which fill any cavities in the body. So That's right. You can deflate the lungs if you want, but the gas is going to go somewhere. Well, the right? gases, you've got gases in your intestines and tummy. Yeah. Um, and that's why when someone drowns, invariably, if you don't find them fairly quickly, like in a, in a, in a, a surfing or a boating accident, yep. invariably for a few days, uh, you don't hear anything. And then a few days later, up comes the body. Yep. And then if it's out in the ocean, it invariably ends up on a beach mm-hmm. where some poor person generally in the morning on a morning walk finds a body. And then, of course, the body uh, not only has it floated to the top and have, you know, the gases that have been working on it to maintain its flotation, but then you've got small sea creatures that invariably travel down the uh, the esophagus. And I've been at postmortems when they've cut uh, the stomach open, and I've seen, um, yeah, prawns uh, inside living living prawns. Um, and mollusks and and maybe some octopus and that, that's among the most that's maybe the most disca- my phobia is stuff living inside my body yeah that is I feel but actually- technically speaking it's edible I mean I know that how fucking dare you? no 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 I mean like you know if you were to take those creatures and put them in a fish and chip shop no one would no one would know would they no there's <laughs> a, there's a, there's a book yeah oh my god. <laughs> It's pretty crook. Uh, it's pretty messed I up. I mean, look, you know, there's always a bit of humour in uh, in death uh, to keep, you know, because you've got to look at the, you know, try and be jolly. You've got to try. It's, okay. pretty, it's well, pretty bad. What I was going to say is, okay, so you started in forensics mm. and um, obviously you've seen some pretty intense stuff mm. in general duties. Mm. Oh, look, I'll tell you one of the things I used to go to a lot of and that's depressing again. I don't want to use that word depressing. Like I just don't want it to become the word of, these, of this season. But, yeah. you know, so many... Unfortunately, a lot of the stuff in forensics that we used to do in fingerprints and scientific was was suicide, right. and it's it's bad. Right. And someone has to go. And these, you know, the ambos they 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 might go, but if it's pretty obvious that you know the person's long gone, yeah. Um, and when we had to, I mean, what happens if, for example, you go to a hanging and you think it's a suicide? Right. But no, it's not. That person was coerced, however, to get up there and put the noose around their neck. Yeah. Or even they died before. That's the whole thing about, you know, the classic about the body that they bring it out of the water and, you know, they can prove, same as a fire, they can prove whether the person was alive before you know, it's uh, to do with yeah, if yeah. they're still breathing and they're in a fire, the, the fine little hairs in their esophagus will have burnt. If they were murdered and then they were put into a fire, mm. there's going to be no burning because they were dead. I mean, look, it's all hey, so what fascinating. Because they weren't breathing in? But they weren't breathing. Right. So um, how do you tell if someone was drowned? Let's say it was drowning, right? How do you tell if someone was de- was drowned or dead? And then look, there are ways of doing it, but like you know, with with strangulation, for example, like mm. there's this tiny, tiny little thing in the neck, like near the Adam's apple. And I remember when I was in forensics, we were always taught that if this particular little, tiny, little, like gristly little bone is broken, mm. the chances are that person died from strangulation. Right. It's one of the one of the only ways to to actually break this particular little bone is to strangle. Yep. Yeah. So, uh, so, but like, I mean, that's obviously not 100% reliable. No, it's not. Right. Mm. Okay. So, right, you're in forensics, you're plotting along, 
you're obviously starting to see some pretty intense stuff. Yeah. That start to, like, do, do you notice a, like an uptick in the amount of traumatic things you were seeing? Look, there's the old thing about um, being professional. Yeah. And I have thought about, I mean, I get a lot of people that say to me, oh, you know, did it affect you? But I, I recall going home, um, um, I didn't drink yeah. at all. I mean, I had my first coffee when I was 29. <laughs> Isn't that weird? And I just, you know, I just didn't, I didn't drink. I didn't, I didn't take prescription medication. Mm. You know, I, I might have done some gardening, uh, some some painting, which was my sort of you know release. Did a bit, a bit of swimming, pretty punk rock, yeah, yep. Um, and just basically chilled. And I and I used to be able to switch on, switch off. You know, go to some particularly staggeringly bizarre, weird. Um, and occasionally you'd go to jobs that you know made me feel perhaps a little bit, well, I guess sad. But um, yeah, it's uh, it's a tough one. Um, the I've got this classic tiny little story about a safe job that I, I went to. Yeah, sure. And it was on the Central Coast. And, and this is kind of a, a bit of a story about I'm not telling this story to show or prove that I was an honest policeman. But believe you me, in the police force, uh, in, particularly in forensics, you were given opportunities that were quite weird. And this was a, a job at an RSL club on the Central Coast. And the um, they'd been... Um, some crims had tried to blow the safe. So the sweet people at the club, it was a crime scene. They've come in, they've gone, you know, no one's allowed to go in that room. They've they've blown the safe. And it was pretty clear that the safe had been, they'd used an oxyacetylene torch on the side. Yeah. You know, but forensics come along, no no, no police, no general duties police had gone into this little room. And, you know, there I, there I am with my, my, my dust jacket and I'm all very sort of got all my scientific gear set up and I'm, you know, dusting for prints and checking the whole thing out. And I'm by myself. There's no one in this room. There's just me and a safe. And then I looked into the safe and the assumption was that they'd blown the safe and they'd got away with an incredible amount of money. But guess what? I looked into the safe and it was chocker block with money. It was full of the takings from this RSL club. So why hadn't they taken it? Well, they'd been disturbed. But no one knew. So there am I thinking to myself, you know what? I'm in a room with a safe full of cash. Everyone thinks the cash is gone. You could have just taken it. I could have taken I could have. I had big pockets in my dust jacket. I could have, in today's money, I could have taken, in today's money, I could have taken maybe four or 500,000 in today's money. That's insane. Like back then it would have been maybe 100 grand. Did you ever, did it cross your mind? No, but I was thinking about not stealing it, but I was thinking to myself, this is weird. Yeah. I mean, you don't have to be Einstein to to see the situation glaringly. And to be honest with you, Paul, if I had have taken the money, mm. no one would have known because the assumption was yeah. that it was all gone. So, so that's a weird sort of, no, I didn't take the money, but it was kind of that. Now, that's a surreal yeah. scene to be in. That's the sort of scene that you'd see in a in a in a, in a good sort of thriller. Yeah, well, I think so, and I certainly look forward to Lucina's the TV show when it ever happens. Um, well, look, uh, I think it's about the time of the episode to go to uh, a listener question, and we've got some really good ones actually. So I was going to read you this one, and let's um, let's figure it out. Here we go. This is from Ash Lane. Was there ever a scene that made you come close to saying nope, not today, Satan, and hightailing it away? So did you ever see anything that was like too much, and you considered bolting? That you saw during forensics, anything that you saw that was so harrowing you considered just just running out of the room. Yeah, there was actually. Um, I've got to be very sensitive here, okay? Because yeah, I need to convey what I saw, but um, I don't want the family of this particular 
story to know that it's about a particular person in their family. Yeah, of course. Was this a story you were going to tell anyway? No, not really. But this okay. question has, because um, I really had to think hard. Right. Because you're a pro. So you get in there and you do what you got to do. Yeah. But I was at the morgue one day and I was examining uh, the stomach contents of yeah. numerous people that I had been um, involved with. You know, these were murder investigations mm. and uh, quite often the stomach contents would be removed and then they'd be examined to find out which would help lead to a cause of death. Yeah. And um, and I was always intrigued about, you know, it's, it's fascinating because I don't know whether I've ever told you, Paul, but when I was nine, my favourite place in to hang out <laughs> Sounds weird. In Canberra was the Museum of Anatomy. Oh, really? Where they, they used to have Farlap's heart there. So, from a very young age, I've always been intrigued. I guess that's like medical bent. Yeah. And uh, anyway, so I was looking through, they had about maybe 50 bottles, jars, with oh, stomach contents right, in them, right. with all the names. And I saw the name of um, a girl that I went to school with oh. on a bottle. And she had a very unusual name and she was... I don't want to give too much away, but she was an incredible swimmer. Right. And I actually, I really, really liked her. Like she was, and I just almost adored her um, when I was probably, let me think, maybe 14. Yeah. And, you know, 14-year-old boys are very impressionable. And this girl was, she was, she was magnificent. Mm. And um, I mentioned to one of the, uh, the people that worked at the morgue, I said, oh, such and such. I said, you know, I used to, I went to school with this uh, particular girl. Yeah. And then he offhandedly said to me, oh, mate, she's out on the slab. Do you want to come and have a look at her? And I said, no, thank you. I was really pissed off because he thought it was cool because she, look, you can imagine. And I just thought this is so fucked up. And I hot, hot-footed it out of the morgue. Right. So that was, and I, and I'm not going to talk about the whole story how she died, but it was, it was horrendous. Yeah, I think, I think my greatest fear about death is not seeing a stranger, but having to confront what it's like to see someone you know, right? Like even peripherally. Like I went to TAFE with this uh, fantastic girl who I was very good friends with. And I did that thing when Facebook started up of like kind of, you know, like figuring out where all my mates had gone. This is like eight, nine years later. And I read an article in the local paper, I think maybe even the Manly Daily, saying that she died in a really bad way. And that's the only encounter I've had with death. But like that's I've never seen to see someone that, you know, dead. What what do you think it's like for the family member to have to process the death of a loved Look, one? Look, there are quite actually, a few. There and are. see it. Like, yeah. I, don't, I don't want a story like that. No, no, no. But there are, there are many, 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 not, look, there aren't hundreds, but yeah. there are many, many cases worldwide where where police, paramedics, fireys have gone to a job yeah. and it turns out it could be a daughter yeah. is, is in the car. There are some really, really, you know. Look, I'm, I'm not going to go on about the particular story, but I will say this. Yeah. That this particular beautiful girl was at a party. And someone injected her with heroin. They gave her a hot shot. She died. So she was murdered. He was never never charged with her murder. But that's that's all I'm going to say about it. But what a waste of a life. Yeah. I'm feeling pretty winded uh, after that. This this season is proving to be pretty harrowing. Uh, we hope you're doing okay. Obviously, we will put a trigger warning up the front of this episode, um, especially regarding the death by suicide stuff. But 
if you're feeling a bit wonky, uh, that's totally understandable. This is all pretty stressful stuff. But um, we'll be back next week with another episode of Loose Units Season 2 Electric Blue. And uh, before I go, just a thank you to Derek over at Castaway Studios, where we actually record this show. Thank you to Tegan Higginbotham, who is doing an amazing job behind the scenes. And thank you to Dad, because obviously this is his story. Now, did you know that Loose Units is an audiobook? And Dad and I recorded an intro for the audiobook. And uh, it's it's been really, really great to hear the feedback. You can listen to Loose Units, the audiobook, via Audible. Or you can buy your very own copy from Bolinda. That's at bolinda.com, B-O-L-I-N-D-A.com, and search for Loose Units. Loose Units is proudly presented by Pillow Talk Productions. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.